One idea I've really been fascinated with lately is the idea of architecture because architecture seems to run against the idea of decentralized command. Decentralized command is when a leader hires people and lets them do their work, their best work, without interfering much. And one way to think about this is that whoever is talking to the primary customer should be the person making the final decision. And this can go one of two ways. This can be where the person on the front line that's there every single day is empowered to make the right decisions. One example that I've heard about Disney World is that cast members there are able to offer families that don't seem to be having a good time a free ice cream cone or a free meal or a gift to one of the attractions that they weren't planning on doing. And so those cast members that walk around the park have the power to interact with the customers and to respond to things as they see them. The other example that comes from books like Intelligent Fanatics is when the leader of the organization goes in and talks to the customers, and then when they go back to their office, they make the decision. So if we were to see Disney doing this, it would be people like Bob Iger and others from the executive suites walking around the park, doing the surveys, talking to the people, and then making decisions based on that data collection. So decentralized command tends to work really well for a lot of things, and architecture isn't like that. Architecture has this single person that's making design decisions. And sometimes those decisions can be really bad. I went to college at Bowling Green State University and there was a running joke there that the architecture was just so bad. You couldn't articulate why it was bad, but you just intuitively knew that it was bad. The book that really highlighted this, that really got me thinking about architecture, is the book The Architecture of Happiness by Elaine de Bolton. And this book, what I thought was an introduction to architecture, is really this idea about how do you see buildings and, and what do buildings mean. And we should admit that buildings mean something to us. In the book, Bolton says that buildings will either speak to us or they'll whisper to us. And he has some really nice examples from his travels around the world where one day he was in a church and it was very solemn and quiet and respectful. And then he walked out of the church and he went into a department store nearby and it was loud and people were bumping into each other and there wasn't that intimacy. I noticed this when I was in New York City and we got to go in St. Patrick's Cathedral this summer and the environment there was totally different than what it was on Fifth Avenue just moments ago. And so buildings have an ability to change our mindset. And it could be a lot or it could be a little, but that's still out there. It's sort of like a gravitational field. Even though we don't necessarily observe it as we're experiencing it, it's still there. I still know that gravity is pulling down on me, even though I can't see gravity waves in the way that I would see light waves or I would hear audio waves. If it's something that's out there, if it's something that surrounds us, that, that applies to our lives, and then we should go ahead and try to understand it. And we should understand it because sometimes architecture or design are really simple and effective ways to solve a problem. This is something Rory Sutherland talked about in his podcast with Shane Parrish. Here's a clip from that interview. 
But what I love about this is no one would have gone to an advertising agency 10 or 15 years ago and, for asked, a, them and asked them to solve this problem. They, they might have gone to a consulting firm. They might have gone to, I don't know. I mean, they, they might have actually treated it as an engineering problem and just said, we've got to build six new, um, uh, you know, six new X-ray lanes and, um, and, and engaged in, in changing reality rather than changing behavior, which is strangely often a default public sector behavior. Because it's, it's always much more acceptable to spend money on infrastructure than it is to spend money on psychology. So we have this situation where the problem was that the lines are too long at this airport. And so maybe we should just build this thing to solve it. Um, and another way to go about it is the way we market this. Maybe we market the the way you get quicker through the line. Or we put up signs about how to... Uh, get pre-checked or other things. But there's this default to think about we should engineer a solution rather than use psychology for a solution. And I think that's what buildings are kind of doing. Buildings are part of that psychology of a situation. When you go into a church, you act a different way than when you go into a Walmart superstore. In the book, Bolton makes the case that buildings encompass our ideals. And he gives a lot of wonderful examples about that. One of them is some Islamic mosque patterns to uh, represent the, the divine qualities of mathematics, where the people who built those churches loved to see these patterns because mathematics was considered a divine skill, a divine art. It was, it was considered something beautiful in the same way that the Stoics talk about nature and how nature is the Stoic ver word for an all-powerful being. That's what my impression was about the Islamic churches, is that these beautiful mathematical patterns were representative of their divine being. Another way that architecture encompasses our ideals is the McMansions that were popular and that still are popular. I found the blog McMansion Hell, which is a incredible magnifying of this weird situation that people find themselves in, where we build these houses. And after reading Bolton's book, I realized what the problems of those McMansions are. We have this inherent expectation. We have this perceived normal for what we think architecture should be. And then when we see something like a McMansion that doesn't fit, then it doesn't match what we expected. I visited the Frank Lloyd Wright Falling Water House, and that building just sits there perfectly. It looks like it's part of the landscape, and that was the design. Even though I don't know much about architecture, this house just seems to fit. So, if this is something worth our effort, what should we do about it? If architecture inspires us to act differently and think differently and perceive the world in different ways, what should we do? Bolden says that there's no formula for good design, but there are some commonalities. One is order without being tedious. A great example from the book is buildings that are all the same height, but there are different designs underneath. So there is some things that are consistent, but not everything is consistent in cookie cutter ways. My wife 
likes to make fun of the suburbs that I grew up in and the suburban neighborhood was a very, very clearly planned out community where there were only certain types of houses that were built and you could pick option A, option B, option C and then choose to add a front porch or to choose to add another car garage. But there weren't many choices, but it actually is a nice design because there's just enough variety without being um, disorderly. Another thing is balance of opposites. Aristocratic tourists is my favorite quote from the book. And this idea that we should have things that balance each other out. In her book, For All the Tea in China, Sarah Rose wrote that there was this large migration during the Industrial Revolution where people were leaving the English countryside for the larger cities where they could find jobs rather than being farmers. But as people moved, there was still this desire for the country. There was this longing for the place that they left. And so, and th th does it really make sense that people would want nature when they had left the countryside for the city? And in the book, Rose makes the case that the people only wanted parts of that. They wanted the things that they didn't have. So they had their teacups glazed with country patterns. They created wallpapers to decorate their homes with patterns of trees and flowers and other things. So when you see those things on dishes, those things are in response to this misbalance of desires, of things that we want in our life. That was started because people left the country for the city, but they still wanted to see the greenery. They still wanted to be part of nature. And we can have that in our buildings as well. We don't want our buildings to be too sterile, or we don't want our buildings to be too crunchy. We want this nice balance between opposites. Bolton also writes that buildings need to have a certain elegance, and that means simple solutions for complex problems. And he gives picture after picture of situations. And that parallels wonderfully with writing, where the best writers are awful able to use the simplest of sentences and the simplest of words to get their point across. I used to think that being a good writer meant that you had um, a dictionary of large words that you could pull from your mind, that you knew the entomology of the history of words. But I think really what makes being a good writer is to have a large dictionary of simple words, where you can replace one simple word with another simple word, but that carries even more freight. Another point from Bolton's book is that we want coherence of buildings in place. We don't want nostalgia nor amnesia about our situations. If we go back to Disney World and the Magic Kingdom in Florida, we can see that the Main Street USA in Disney World is a idyllic small town Main Street where there's all these old time shops like the barber shop or the bakery. And so Walt Disney designed this to take people back. But we can see at Disney World, too, that it's not all that. It's, there's, there's technology and modernity in that Main Street USA. So it's a nice balance of things. I liked Bolton's book quite a bit. I'm still not well-versed in architecture, and there's still a lot that I don't understand. There are things like desire paths 
that mean that not all of architecture is a top-down process. But I visited the Frank Lloyd Wright homes this summer, and there is something there about having a single person with a single vision making something for a single goal. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.